Well, we're getting started. Just a reminder, uh, Chafer Seminary registration goes on for another week, end of next week, and pray for Jeff as he prepares to go to Brazil. Uh, we're going to have this meet and greet. There was confusion. Because it was just hard. This is like juggling balls, and, get, and everything's always up in the air. But we're settled down. We're going to have three judges come and talk at this meet and greet on uh, August the 20th. Not this Saturday, but the next Saturday. That gave everybody a little more time. And we'll be start serving refreshments about 7.30 in the morning on that Saturday. Now, why, should, why do we do this and why should you come to it? Well, we do it for a couple of reasons. One of the foremost reasons is we need to be informed voters. And you don't always get a chance to talk to the down down ticket people and to know them. How many times have you, don't raise your hands, how many times have you gone to vote and you're just, okay, I'm just going to vote straight party. I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know if they're qualified, and but who knows. And so this way you get to put a face. That's, that's an important reason. We need to know who we're, who we're voting for. Number two is it's a good civics lesson. I did pretty good in civics when I was in high school, but we didn't get down into the nitty-gritty of all all these different things that are going on in county government and in city government. And that's where the rubber meets the road and what happens with tax appraisal districts. it's, It's important. And when we have had most of these candidates... Uh, it's it's not always about them, and it's not running down the other par- party. It is about educating people on civics, on why we vote, on what is going on in their particular office that they're running for. And that's important. As believers, if we're going to do everything to the glory of God, I think that at least includes doing something as important as exercising our voting franchise and as well-informed as well-informed voters. So I know last year I heard, I went to a couple of other events and heard several judges other than the two that we had come speak to us, and I was just blown away at what I learned. Uh, these guys are very, very good, and the, and the most of the Republican candidates are, and I don't know, I know we're going to have Mark, Land, Mark Landrum, but that's the only one I know we're going to have. We'll have two others. And um, and they they've been they were on the bench they they got voted off when Beto O'Rourke ran against who was it Ted Cruz for Senate about four years ago and that was the last time we could do straight party voting and so many people just voted straight Democrat because they were going to vote for Beto and um, so all these great Republican. Uh, county judge, county treasurer, all these great people we had that had experience and years in the job, uh, judges, civil court, criminal courts, were doing a great job, and they all got fired. And it's a nightmare what goes down in the judiciary now, and we need to be informed about it. We need to have the facts. So that's why we invite them here. 
Number one, we need to be informed voters. And number two, we need to have these civics lessons because there's a lot for us to learn so that we really know why these roles are, are important. This is, th- these are the closest elected offices to where, where we live and what we do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, what happens in Washington impacts us, but often at a distance. What these people are doing on a daily basis determine the culture of the county and the culture of the city in many, many ways. And right now what we've got is a lot of felons running loose on the streets and incredible amounts of crime. And when I'm on my street and I had a, a shootout last October at the end of my street at 6.30 in the morning because some thugs were trying to steal catalytic converters, uh, that's way too late. Sun was already up. And um, we need to do stuff, something about that. So we have to learn about this. So that's all I'm going to say about that. We've got this evangelism for the Fort Bend County Fair uh, coming up October 24th and 25th and October 1st and 2nd. Jeff Phipps is the point man on that. And then we're going to have a baptism. After church on Sunday, I got an email from uh, Becky Leha. She wanted to get baptized, so we sent out an announcement. Now we have five who want to be baptized. So that's going to be on Saturday, September 3rd. That's Labor Day weekend. And uh, just be be aware of that. And then uh, we're finalizing the details on the June 6th to 19th, 2023 Israel trip. So put it on your calendars and save your shekels. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege and blessing that we have the freedom to study your word, that we have in our hands a copy of Scripture, a fair, fair, decent translation of the original, one from which we can learn wisdom and guidance, learn about salvation, learn about the spiritual life, learn about how to relate your eternal truth to every aspect of our lives. Father, we're thankful that we had men and women in the past, uh, men and women who included pastors, included theologians, included uh, businessmen, included uh, lawyers, a variety of people who, because they knew the Scriptures and had internalized the Scriptures and because they were students of history, they were able to fashion together a nation 
a constitution, a rule of law that didn't just get plucked out of thin air but was the end result of centuries of development as with an impact from the scriptures and father it recognizes our freedom to worship and it is deeply threatened today all of our liberties which come from you not from the government are threatened by people who wish to control everybody else father we pray that you might uh, expose the evil We've certainly seen some things this week that expose the evil that is going on in Washington and in and the bureaucracy, and we pray that you would continue to expose these things and open the eyes of people that they may uh, choose life instead of death. And, Father, we know that if the volition is exercised in the wrong direction, that we still trust in you, we still have joy, we still have stability, and we just carry on with our mission. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we'll be reminded of that mission. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to wrap up this study of the overcomer tonight as we go forward. The toughest passage dealing with the overcomer is really the passage we dealt with last time in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 2, dealing with the second church, which was the church at Smyrna. And so as we go through this, we're going to uh, see how things are structured and what's going on. So uh, we're going to be looking at just the last part, the overcomer promise that is given in these other, uh, we've done two, so we've got five more uh, to go. Uh, We're in a study of Philippians. Philippians talks about the day of Christ twice in Philippians 1, 6 and 1, 10. And we saw that this is not a reference to the day of the Lord, which is what covenant theologians, amillennialists interpret this because of their allegorical basis for interpretation, which is completely fraudulent. And when you take the Bible literally, you end up with a dispensational scheme, some of which is on the board. And the rapture of the church ends the church age, and immediately thereafter, there's an evaluation judgment of believers, church age believers. We are the only ones raptured and resurrected at that time in history. So that uh, shortly thereafter, the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation begins but we're focusing on what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the distribution of rewards and awards for those who have done well in their spiritual life in terms of being faithful to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4.4. It's required of stewards to be faithful, not to be successful in the eyes of the world. That's one of the most important verses that pastors, missionaries, many others need to grapple with. God is not going to evaluate pastors on how many people he managed to cram into his church with lots of gimmicks and lots of programs and other things that do not lead to equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, We are uh, going to be evaluated on the basis of our faithfulness to the word and our faithfulness to the Lord. That's what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. It's required of a steward to be faithful. So the evaluation is quite different from other areas of life. 
and that evaluation will be played out in terms of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for every believer, not just those who are uh, in some sort of full-time professional-type Christian ministry, but every believer is in full-time ministry from the instant that they're saved. So we've been looking at this one category, uh, talking about believers who are those who are uh, winners in the spiritual life. That overcomer, as we've seen, is not a term for a positional reality, but an experiential reality. And some of the verses we're going to look at tonight are going to reaffirm that. And in the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven, uh, seven, seven ecclesiastical or congregational evaluation reports for these seven congregations, and they give us an idea of what is going to be evaluated when we are at the judgment seat of Christ. These seven churches are located in the western part of Turkey, in the what was then the Roman province of Asia. Today it is western Turkey. And if you notice, these seven stars here represent the seven lamps of the churches, the seven churches, and the way in which uh, they are evaluated is in a clockwise direction, starting down here with uh, Ephesus first, and then to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. In each one of these, there is a commission, which is the address which opens uh, each of these evaluation reports to the angel, that is the recording angel who's the, in charge of uh, collating the data on the spiritual life and spiritual progress of each congregation. This uh, opening address uh, opens each letter. Then there is a reference to some characteristic of Jesus Christ, which comes out of the uh, appearance of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 when Christ appeared to the Apostle John at the, uh, on the island of Patmos. Then there is a commendation in five of the seven. Two do not have a commendation. And they are, it is praise for specifics in terms of their spiritual progress and their spiritual maturity. Then fourth, there is a statement of condemnation, the things that they are doing wrong. Uh, two of them have nothing but uh, condemnations. Uh, Two of them have nothing but commendations. And so this is a warning about a spiritual flaw or failure in the congregation. And then there is a correction, and that is a warning. It usually begins with the statement, repent, which means to change. Change what? Well, contextually, it has to do with change what what I've just said. Instead of being a failure in these areas, uh, turn from it and get right with the Lord. So there's a prescription to recovery. Then there is a call or a command to listen. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. That he who has an ear is saying if you have positive volition, you'll listen and respond. You'll do the right thing. And this is the, then there's a challenge, which is that if you straighten things out, there will be a specific award. So at the end of the letter, the evaluation to the Ephesians, we saw a promise, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And a lot of people say, well, I, I trusted Christ, so I'm going to heaven, which is paradise, and I'm going to have eternal life, so 
That, this must be what's true for every believer. But when we evaluate a few things that are said in Scripture, we realize that that really does have some problems. And I went through how the tree of life is used in the Scripture as it originated in the Garden of Eden. And um, then after the sin, the uh, man and woman were blocked from coming into the garden because of the presence of the tree of life. It's used in a metaphorical way in Proverbs to reference uh, those who are benefiting from certain blessings in life because of the uh, ministry or service of others, because of what they say and what they do. It is a tree of life to people. So it's talking about giving an additional abundance or fulfillment to life because of the uh, blessing by association uh, with someone who is a maturing believer. And then it's used uh, three times in Revelation. One is in the passage that we're talking about. One is in Revelation 22.2, which is talking about the, uh, the New Jerusalem and the location of this tree of life. And the last phrase says, the leaves of the tree were for the health. The... Um, King, New King, uh, King James translates it healing as if they're sick and they need to be healed. There's not going to be any sickness in heaven, so they don't need to be healed. But the health here has to do, again, with the richness of their life. Uh, ha- having health is a positive quality, and that's what this is talking about. It's an additional blessing, an additional quality to their eternal life. In Revelation 22.14, we read, Blessed are those who do his commandments. Now, I recognize this is a textual problem, but what's weird about this one is that in uh, in the majority text, which is 80% of the manuscripts we have from the New Testament are all reflect what is called the Byzantine text. They've classified these all these different uh, ancient documents into different groups. There's about four. Some people question that and say, well, basically, there's only two, but we don't need to get into all of that. So that's the majority text. The Textus Receptus, which was the basis for the King James translation, was only about eight to 12 of these Byzantine-type manuscripts. And they weren't very good manuscripts. So, so a lot of people confuse majority texts with the King James and, and with the TRs if they're the same. Even scholars do that, and it's it's just dead wrong. There's over 1,800 differences between the majority text and the, and the Texas Receptus in lots of important ways. That's another issue. But in the ancient Greek manuscripts we have of Revelation, the majority text, about 90% of the time, agrees with what's in the critical text. The critical text is the Greek text that lies behind the book of Revel- uh, uh, NIV, New American Standard, uh, English Standard Version. Everything but the King James and New King James Version are, um, are, are based on the critical text. And the majority text and the critical text are usually a little different when you have textual problems in the rest of the New Testament. But in Revelation, they're almost always the same. So to look at this passage where the majority text is, is siding with the Textus Receptus against the critical text is a, I mean, that, for a textual scholar, 
lights are flashing because this is very unusual in Revelation. So that's probably, I would, I would argue, that's the superior reading. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's a pretty strong statement, and it's a work statement. It's not blessed are those who trusted in Christ because they'll have access to the tree of life. It's blessed are those who are obedient have access to the tree of life. So that's works. In contrast to verse 17, which talks about the gospel, let anyone who desires take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 12, uh, Christ says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's not grace. That's, that's a reward for what you have done. So what we've seen is that salvation is free, but rewards are earned. Uh, Colossians 3.12, uh, the, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Why? Because you serve the Lord Christ. So the inheritance, there's part of the inheritance that we receive is a reward for our walk with the Lord. Uh, Revelation 21.7 goes on to say, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. So one of the characteristics of an of a, of a overcomer is that he inherits all things, not some things. But we've already seen from our look at the passage of Romans 8.17 at the beginning of this study that there's two categories of heirs. Remember, there's the heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, but it's messed up in a lot of translations because they can't figure out where to put the comma. And so they put the comma in a place where it looks like heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are synonymous, but they're distinct. You have to look at the comma. Remember this? Time to eat children. Or is it time to eat, comma, children? Where you put the comma saves lives. So Romans 8.17 says, If children, then heirs of God. If we're children of God, we're heirs of God. That's every believer. Comma. And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Suffering with Christ is a work. We don't get saved because we suffer with Christ. That's what produces an additional or secondary category of inheritance. So eternal life is free, uh, and it's a gift with no conditions. Christ said, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. And in Revelation 21, 7, the next verse, he says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. That's something in addition to what is given freely. Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. What's interesting is that's, that's in the New King James, and that's based on the majority text. The New American Standard, which is allegedly based on the critical text of the Greek Testament, doesn't translate it with what's in the critical text. It translates it with what's in the majority text, that this is according to their work. So the reason I get into this right now is because the Friday morning pastor group has been studying first Old Testament textual criticism the first half of the year. Now we're into New Testament textual criticism. So I got all this on the front of my head, but it's really important here. Um, 
Revelation 22:14 says blessed are those who do his commandments. That's not salvation. That's in addition to salvation. We ran through, when uh, three or four lessons back I went through all the passages that talk about if you love Christ said if you love me you keep my commandments. And that those who don't love him don't keep his commandments, but it doesn't mean they're not saved. And then there's the promise of paradise, and this is a special place where there is special privilege and fellowship with, with the Lord. We looked at Smyrna. Smyrna is located to the, um, these are some various arches over the uh, uh, Agora, the marketplace that's in Smyrna. And Smyrna is located uh, just to the northwest of modern, uh, Smyr- ancient Smyrna's modern Izmir. And uh, so that's that's the location, and we see that they are commended for because they're going to go through adversity, and they're going to go through persecution, and they're going to go through martyrdom. But their incentive is to be faithful unto death. Now that's the condition at the end of Revelation two 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 ten. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the crown is not based on just being a believer, but on being faithful until death. So then they receive the crown of life, and there's no loss of rewards. So that's Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. There are four crowns mentioned in the New Testament. Crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. The crown of life, which is mentioned here and in James 1.12. The crown of glory, which is mentioned in 1 Peter 5.4. And the victor's crown in 1 Corinthians 9.24-27. Each of these is a translation. The word crown is a translation of the Greek word stephanos, which refers to some sort of, of wreath that was given to the winners of the races at the Olympics ancient Greek Olympics, and they were a perishable wreath. That's what 1 Corinthians 9 says. Uh, Paul uses the analogy of an athlete and said they're running for a perishable wreath, but we are running the race for an imperishable wreath, that is, these uh, various crowns. Now, some people add 1 Thessalonians 2.19 as if it's a crown, but I think it's used more figuratively there because Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and he says that they are his crown of rejoicing. So he's not talking about a separate Stephanos crown here in the sense of an award, but that they are his, his crown of joy, just like uh, when you rear your children and they go out on their own and they do well, you would say, you're my crown of joy. You are, uh, this, you are what I have produced and you are great. So that's uh, that's the figure of speech there, and and so in Revelation two ten you get this statement: "Be faithful until death, and I'll give you this crown of life." And then the challenge: He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We talked about that last time. The second death is Hades; it has no power. Over those in the first resurrection, not that they will go into the lake of fire. That's what this is saying. We're not going to go into the lake of fire. But in Revelation 20, verse 6, it uses this term meros. 
he who has part or a share of inheritance in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. Wait a minute. If you don't get rewards, the second death does have a role. Not because, not that you're going to end up there as a believer. That's, that's certain that you're not. But in Revelation 21, 6 through 8, we're told of the promise of the water of life freely. That's the gospel. Because of that, everyone is, that's, that's going to, in, in heaven is, everyone who's believed is going to be saved. No question. But there's going to be two types. Those who overcome will inherit all things again. And in verse 8, but those who continue in sin and don't confess their sin, don't get right with God, because uh, we all sin, and we're all going to be sinners all the way to the end of our lives. But some people are going to have their sins dealt with by confession of sin, and some will not. And that's what I pointed out comes up in John thirteen eight, when Jesus is illustrating confession and cleansing by washing the disciples' feet. Peter said, I don't want you to wash my feet. Using a Greek word means just washing one part of your body. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you will have no what part, no meros, no inheritance with me. You're still going to be saved, but you're not going to get your inheritance. So there's a distinction. So the, and so then he goes on to talk about cleansing and the importance of cleansing, that every, everyone there, except one, which was Judas, had been positionally cleansed. You have all been clean except one. But they still need to have their feet washed and their hands washed, figurative of the uh, sin along the way as we grow as believers. Now we're with the third church, the church at Pergamum. So we're going around the clock, clockwise, and now we're up at Pergamum. It's addressed to the angel of the church in Pergamum and says these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in verse 13, Christ praises them. This is their commendation. It says, I know your works. Of course he does. He's omniscient. There's nothing. There's no secret sin. Christ knows, sees everything. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, it seems to me that if you think back on what I've been teaching on Overcomer, that Jesus said before he went to the cross, using a perfect tense verb emphasizing completed past action, I have already overcome the world. In John, he talks about overcoming the world. He talks about uh, the adolescent believer overcomes uh, Satan. Uh, the advancing believer overcomes the world. That this is this is important. So uh, Satan's throne. This is worldliness. This is the false religion that had its headquarters there in uh, Pergamum. But how did the believers respond to that? Uh, they are praised. Jesus says, "You hold fast to my name, my character, who I am." That's what that idiom my name means it's not just a, a label it's not just a tag you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith okay now that's not talking about phase one faith at salvation that's talking about ongoing faith it's talking about the whole body of belief uh in the christian life 
you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, which was one of the believers, the name of one of the believers there in Pergamum, uh, Antipas was my faithful mort- martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this is a place that uh, uh, Satan's throne, Satan dwells. It is a place where the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, rules supreme. So their commendations are that they held fast to the truth, to Jesus. They didn't uh, commit heresy and say Jesus was just a man or any of these other things. They held to a solid belief in Jesus Christ as the eternal God-man or the everlasting from his incarnation on uh, God-man. They held fast in a hostile environment, and they did not deny Christ. And then in verse 14, he says, but I've got a couple of things against you. You're just not doing it all right. You have done some things. You held true in your Christology. You didn't go into a heretical view of who Jesus is. But there are those among you who have held on to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam was that false prophet back in Numbers. And he was uh, hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. And at first, God told him not to even go. He, was, he lived over near Babylon. But he kind of begged God, and God said, okay, but you can't say anything unless I authorize it. And so there's the episode with Balaam's do- talking ass, and um, the angel that is standing there, which is the angel of the Lord, to block Balaam from going and doing what he had intended to do. And then the angel of the Lord confronts Balaam. And he never did get to a point where he could curse. There's there's three different episodes. He lost. But sneaky, conniving Balaam comes along later, and he goes to Balak and he says, if you really want to destroy the Israelites, here's what you do. You take all your good-looking uh, priestesses to the fertility cult uh, that you worship to Baal and the Asherah, and you send all those uh, ritual prostitutes among the Jews, and they're just going to fall for them left and right. And next thing you know, they're going to have compromised their their devotion to their God, and this is a violation of their first commandment. And this will destroy the nation because of, uh, of this apostasy and false religion. That's what the doctrine of Balaam was, those who had compromised uh, with the purity of the truth. Um, and that uh, that's the stumbling block that they put before the children of Israel. And uh, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, in the New Testament... Um, Paul says that this is basically a doubtful thing, a neutral thing in his letter to, to uh, Corinthians. But there can also be a problem with eating things sacrificed to idols because uh, they are willingly doing that as part of their worship of these idols. Remember, they've already compromised with idolatry. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And in compromising with them, they are now involved in the ritual of eating, uh, this is the devil's communion, as it were, and they're eating these things sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. And it's not just it's not just as simple as ha- having um, 
having an affair where you're to uh, love your neighbor, but some people got carried away and loved their neighbor's wife. Uh, this is um, much more than that. This is sexual immorality in the fertility religions, which is going to the uh, temple of Baal, Asherah, and the others, and uh, having uh, sexual activity with the temple prostitutes, which is, in effect, uh, acting out uh, a union with the false gods and goddesses. So they're condemned for compromising with paganism, uh, Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which is an odd group that people aren't too sure exactly who they are. Uh, so they're condemned for that. And they're challenged then to change, repent, change. In other words, those who are compromised, turn away from that. Confess your sin, get back in fellowship, leave that behind you. Uh, repent or else, and here's the threat of judgment, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, which is the word of God. And then the promise, he who has an ear, or the challenge, he who has an ear, that is, he who has positive volition, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes. So that's in contrast to the one who doesn't repent, okay? The one who repents and goes forward is the overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it. Now, this is really interesting because uh, of these the, the symbolism here and trying to figure out just exactly what does it mean by this, uh, by this hidden manna. Now, manna was the bread that God gave the Israelites in the, um, in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. And if you recall, after they had left Egypt, they started complaining about the food that they had, and God gave them this this miraculous bread every morning. It was called the bread of bread of angels, uh, manna. Manna literally in Hebrew means "What is it?" Or to put it in more in the vernacular, "What it is." So this is manna. What is it? Ma ma in Hebrew, ma man means what? And na adds it, it. So it's literally what, what is it? And they, um, uh, they were given that it, and, and it was about the manna that, uh, Moses wrote, or that God said rather, man shall not live by bread alone. You gotta have your bread and here's some bread. But you don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you have to put that together that manna represents the spiritual nourishment uh, that God feeds us. Who's the one who is the bread of life? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he makes this statement, one of the uh, seven I am's in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. And so he is the one who provides nourishment and fellowship for us. Those who, he talks about this, he says, those who eat my body and drink my blood. And he's not talking about a literal thing. He's talking about feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. So um, those who are uh, overcomers are given some of this secret manna. 
and it indicates that a, a closer fellowship and intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And then it says, I will give him a white stone. And what's, what's the, this deal with the white stone? Well, in the Greek culture at the time of the, uh, the Olympic Games, that the victor in the contest was given a number of different awards and rewards. And one of the things that they would be given was a white stone that had his name written on it. And it was a reward that basically got him into any event that he wanted to attend uh, free of charge. And so it also enabled him to enter into uh, the special feasts uh, that would be uh, celebrated during the year, and he would be given a seat of honor. So this is talking about the Christian overcomer has a closer fellowship with the Lord, and he's going to have special access and privileges in, uh, in the kingdom and on into heaven. And so another, another type of stone was also used in the ancient world, given by wealthy families to close friends that would give them access to their hospitality so that if you went somewhere and you needed help, uh, this was a, uh, like a calling card today, uh, like dropping, dropping names. You could just say, okay, I've got a, a stone, white stone here uh, with uh, the name of the aristocrat from my hometown, and as a result of that, you'd be uh, treated in a, in a, a distinct and very hospitable way. So these is talking about privileges and the idea of a new name written on there. Remember, a name in Scripture has to do with character. And so God's going to have a special nickname for every one of us that relates to our spiritual character. And, um, and it's not going to be like stumpy or shorty or sleepy or grumpy. It's going to be a lot better than that. And uh, it's going to uh, reflect positively our our spiritual uh, advance. So that's the new name. So it's all of these are talking about special awards that are given for those who repented and turned away from paganism and back to the Lord. And that paganism, remember, I pointed out earlier that that part of the they were. Uh, uh, rewarded for, or commended for, rather, was that they did not deny my faith. Well, when we get to the next verses, we're, um, we're reminded of 1 John 5, 4 that said that the overcomer uh, has what overcomes the world, which is our faith, not saving faith, but sanctification faith. He's growing and he is maturing. Uh, this is takes us to an understanding of Revelation 2.13. Uh, they're believers, and they're saved with salvation faith, phase one, but this is sanctification faith. They haven't turned back, turned their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the faith that enables them to go forward in the spiritual life. So all of this relates to uh, these special awards. The passage for uh, manna and for the bread of life, was John six forty eight through fifty one. Jesus said, I am the in verse fifty one, I am the bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So this is the promise to the overcomer. 
Now, the next church, which is the fourth church, is the church in Thyatira. Uh, this is uh, covered in um, Revelation 2.18, Revelation 2.18 down through 27. And this is another uh, interesting church. Now, we've made the corner. We've gone from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and down to Thyatira. We have three more to go, and this church is commended for their love. They are commended by their love. In verse 19, the Lord says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, works doesn't have anything to do with salvation. So they are being praised and awarded and commended for their works. That is their spiritual growth. They're walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit is producing His fruit in their life. And the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned is love in Galatians 5, 20 and 21. Love, service, uh, their faithfulness, their use of the faith rest drill, and their patience. And uh, there are increasing works, so they are growing and and maturing according to Revelation 2.19. But there are some problems. There are, there's one main problem, a condemnation, verse 20. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, who's Jezebel? Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. But she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Phoenician woman, and her father was Itobal, who was the chief priest of the cult of Baal in Phoenicia. And Ahab married her, and she came with baggage, people baggage, the priests of Baal and the priestesses of, of Asherah. And so she brought, Israel, the northern king was already into idolatry and they're worshiping the golden calf that was set up in the north, uh, up near, um, uh, in the south at Bethel and then up north near Dan. But she comes in with a whole different religion and seduces the people. So she is just as evil as she can be. She will finally... Uh, die and be executed and fall out, and she falls out of a window, lands at the ground, and the dogs li- eat her up and lick up her blood. That was Elijah's prophecy about how she would die. Nothing is left of her for anyone to commemorate or memorialize. So the promise then that is held out for to encourage them to uh, stay with it and to go forward is given in. Um, uh, verse uh, 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. Now, this is important for understanding overcomer. An overcomer is someone who keeps his works, keeps Christ's works. It is someone who is working, someone who is serving, someone who is growing spiritually. That can't be someone who is simply a believer because not all believers are going to keep Christ's Works. That's clear from first, the epistles in First John. Uh, so the overcomer it keeps my works until the end. This is the biblical doctrine of perseverance, not the Calvinistic perversion of it. But this is the biblical doctrine of perseverance, where you th- those who 
continue to grow, continue to go forward. That doesn't mean that you won't have seasons of carnality at days when you're just grumpy and mad at God or months or years when you're grumpy or mad at God. But this is saying that the one who continues uh, growing to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He's going to have uh, rulership in the millennial kingdom and also in the, uh, in the uh, eternity to come. Verse 27 says, And he shall rule them, that is Christ, shall rule them with a rod of iron. That comes from Psalm 2-7. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, they, that is the nation, shall be dashed to pieces. That's what happens when Christ comes at the second coming. He's going to come with a rod of iron, and he is going to destroy the kingdoms of the earth. And then he is going to... Uh, receive reward from his father. So the incentives are to hold fast. Uh, They will have power over the nations. And then we read at the end uh, that they will uh, be given in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. This is some sort of special award that nobody really knows what what it is, but it's related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it goes back to Numbers 24-7, one of Balaam's prophecies, that a star uh, shall come from Jacob. And they use the word star like we do, indicating a celebrity of some type, somebody of significance. A star shall come from Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. A star shall come from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, a ruler coming from Israel. So the star... If you put these lines parallel, star is parallel to scepter. Uh, Jacob is parallel to Israel because that was his other name. God gave him a new name. Uh, And so the star is going to be a ruler. He will have a scepter. Revelation 22, 16, uh, Jesus is speaking and says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root the root of Jesse from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. I am the root and the offspring of David, going back to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7. And he says, I am the bright and morning star. And, uh, you know, light always has to do with illumination, and he's the living word. He said, John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And so it is very clear that that this that Christ is the glorious one pictured by the uh, bright and morning star. Then we come to the church of Sardis. And the church of Sardis has... Uh, has several uh, problems, and um, and also they do some good things as as well. So the Church of Sardis, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. In other words, everybody thinks you're super spiritual and you all are doing great things for God and great things for the Lord, but you're not. You're spiritually dead. I mean, you're you're spiritually alive, but you're living in carnality and you're acting like a spiritually dead person. 
And so that's Sardis. Why do they act like a spiritually dead person? Because they're out of fellowship, they're living in sin, and they're being influenced by the world. You can't overcome until you overcome the world. And so Sardis is not, um, uh, they're not overcoming. So they have a reputation, reputation of life, but they're in carnal death. They're called to remember uh, their, their uh, previous state. And then they are uh, then they are to watch. Those are the things that they are challenged challenge to do. Uh, they are to uh, remember and to watch and then to repent to change. And then in verse five, there is um, there's a promise. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. This is a special uniform of some type in heaven among those who are in heaven. Um, in verse 4, he says, There's a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The others are Christians too, so this is distinguishing between those who... Uh, defiled their garments, the Christians who defiled their garments, and those who did not, and those who did not defile their garments by compromising with the world, uh, they are the ones who will be clothed in white garments. Uh, and he says, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before uh, my father and before his angels. So there's these three promises, uh, white garments, name not blotted out of the book of life, and praise before God and the angels. Now, when you look at what is promised them in uh, verse 5, a lot of people think that when, it's, when he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, that that indicates that if you aren't an overcomer, you'll get your name blotted out of the book of life and you'll lose your salvation. And that's a big promise. But, but they, they totally miss the fact this is a figure of speech. We use it all the time. It's called a litotes. And a litotes is a figure of speech in which you affirm something positive by expressing it in the negative. So let's say that you are an athlete and you're a football player and the game is down to just the last five seconds and you're the kicker and you come on the field and you kick a perfect field goal and you break the tie and you win the game. The coach comes up to you and says, pat you on the back and says, I'm not kicking you off the team. What he's saying is, I'm going to make sure I keep you. Okay? It doesn't indicate that he was planning to kick the guy off the team. He's just affirming that you've got a solid contract because of what you've done. It's stating the positive. It's not saying that, that it's possible that you would be eliminated from the book of life, but you're going to have a place of honor in the book of life. And so, and that means that you will be praised before God and the angels. Uh, for what you have done. So there's going to be some sort of honorary ceremony where uh, you're going to be um, uh, praised for all of, your, uh, all of your works and your service to the Lord. 
So that takes us then to the next church, which is the church in Philadelphia. This is a church about whom nothing negative is, is said. And Philadelphia is the next one. We've gone almost all the way around the circle now, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're in Philadelphia, one to go. And um, uh, so we come to Philadelphia. There's not a whole lot left of Philadelphia. You look out here over the fields, and this is where the uh, city of Philadelphia were. There are just a few ruins. The thing about Turkey is that nobody in political power in Turkey since about uh, six or 700, has any desire to dig up and demonstrate the heritage of Christianity in Turkey because it's controlled by Muslims. And according to those archaeologists who have worked in Turkey a lot, there are just an enormous amount of undiscovered uh, ruins and information about uh, about Christianity in the early years of, of the church age in Turkey, but nobody's excavating this, and there's some excavation going on, uh, but not nearly enough. So they are going to be commended um, in the, ch- the church at, at Philadelphia for uh, taking advantage of opportunities for their spiritual strength for they are obedient in applying the word, and they did not uh, deny Christ. And um, in verse 8, I, Christ says, I know your works. Notice the emphasis is on works. He doesn't say, I know your faith and you got saved. He's saying, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. That shows opportunity. Opportunity comes because they have made good decisions in walking with the Lord. I have set an open door before you, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So the open door indicates opportunity. Uh, They have uh, spiritual strength. They have been obedient to God's word. They've kept his word, and they have not denied Christ. And he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan... That is probably a reference to Jewish opposition to Christianity in the area of Philadelphia. We know that happened in in other areas at the time, and it was not unusual. And so he's alluding there to to those who have succumbed to the um, to the thinking of Satan, who have rejected Christ as the Messiah. And. Um, and uh, he goes on to say, they say they are Jews and are not. Remember, Paul said, not all Israel is of Israel. Only those who are believers in the promises of God are true Israel. Those who are not, are, who have uh, disobeyed are not. And verse 10, he says, because you have kept my command to persevere. That's not salvation. That is after salvation. See, Lordship Salvation people come along here and say, see, if you're really saved, you persevere. That's heresy. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, 
which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Earth dwellers are the unbelievers. So this is a clear promise that they would not go through the rapture, that the church would not go through the rapture. And then verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Uh, Hold on to that. So that is a challenge to endurance. And then there's the promise. It sounds odd to our ears. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Notice my God is used one, two, three, four times in this particular uh, in this particular verse, it says, uh, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And again, it's repeating this promise that you get this new special uh, name uh, that comes from, from God. So when we uh, look at this whole concept of, of this pillar, this is... Um, it's interesting what we've discovered is in Philadelphia, these are the columns the pillars of the Church of St. John. And what they would do is if you did something that was honorable or something that was commendable, then your name and your deeds would be inscribed on the pillar. And so this is just another example of some special recognition for uh, service and for obedience uh, to the Lord. So this, uh, the pillar is a permanent part of the uh, temple or of worship, and it indicates that this is a, uh, a, a special honor that is given to the one who is victorious. And so they are, uh, rewarded, uh, because they hold fast. They'll have their name on a pillar in the temple of God. And it's the name of my God, name of the city of my God, and my new name. And all of that emphasizes uh, a special relationship to God. Remember in the Old Testament, the high priest had on, a, uh, on, his, um, on his hat, it said, uh, Holy to the Lord, you're set apart to the Lord. And this idea of having the name of the city of my God given to you indicates citizenship in the new Jerusalem and that you have a special status there because in the ancient world somebody would be given a new name as a result of what they had done. So again, this is this idea, these awards set these people apart for what they they aren't participation prizes that every believer gets just because they went out and they signed up for the team. They are distinct awards for doing well on the team. Then we come to the last church, which is not not a good one. That's the church of Laodicea. And Laodicea is well known for a couple of different verses in here. One is verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And that has been misinterpreted by tens of thousands of expositors. They think if you're hot, you're all for God, and if you're cold, you're not. And that's ridiculous. They don't understand the background. You, you had these springs 
in Laodicea, and they were known for their bathhouses. And what we've discovered archaeologically is these are the clay pipes where they brought the cold water from the cold springs and the hot water from the hot springs into the city. But who wants to go get in a lukewarm bath? It's not any good. Who wants to drink a lukewarm cup of tea or cup of coffee? You don't want it. You're going to spit it out. But if it's cold, you like iced coffee is really good. Hot coffee is really good. Lukewarm coffee is not so good. Same thing with tea. Iced tea is good. Hot tea is good. Lukewarm tea is not so good. And, and, and that's the point. And archaeologists have discovered this, that, that what's really going on behind this passage is that they had hot water coming into town and cold water coming into town, but when it got lukewarm, it was not usable. So that's what this is talking about. Jesus is saying, because you're neither cold nor hot, I can't use you because you're just a lukewarm, worthless believer. And that's not a very good thing to have the Lord say about you. And um, he, sa- he makes it even worse than that. He says, because you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'll just spit you out. So there are the commendations. Uh, they're lukewarm. They're compromised. Or these are the condemnations, rather. They're lukewarm. They're compromised. They're self-sufficient. They're arrogant. And as a result of that, they're, they're not going to be getting any awards. And that's what the Lord is counseling them for. 18, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined. In other words, get with it. Serve the Lord, and you'll get gold, silver, precious stones. That's just metaphor for awards for obedience. And and um, and if not, uh, there's going to be consequences, and there'll be chastening. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then there's this picture that comes up in, in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not Jesus wanting to come into your heart so you will be saved. And it's amazing how many churches and how many organizations use this as a salvation verse. The reason you know it's not a salvation verse is verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says, as many as I love, talking to that congregation, I love you all. And I will rebuke you and chasten you. He's talking to the whole congregation. But the word for love is not agape. The word is phileo. And phileo is never, ever, ever, ever used of God's love for an unbeliever. God only has agape love for the world. Uh, God loved the world in this way, and it's agape. I mean, agapao, the verb. Uh, God demonstrated his love, uh, that's agape, toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he doesn't have agape love for the unbeliever. I mean, uh, for the, for, um, he doesn't have ph- uh, phileo love for the unbeliever. He only has agape love for the unbeliever. But here he says, I love you all. I'll rebuke you and chasten you. So he's talking about believers, that Laodicean losers were all believers. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Sitting down at a meal in Middle Eastern culture is a picture of fellowship. Eating and drinking together is a picture of fellowship. Uh, we do, we've inherited a lot of that in our culture. You have some special day. You have a birthday. You have an anniversary. You get a promotion. What do you do? You get your friends together, and you go out, and you eat and drink, and you have a celebration. So it's a picture of, of fellowship. But Jesus is excluded from the fellowship of the church. He says, um, uh, if you let me in, I'll come in and have fellowship with you. To the one who overcomes, that's the one who's going to respond to the incentives. And he says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to you to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down uh, with uh, my father on his throne. This is where we started this study, if you remember. We end up right back here. This is a promise to excel. This is a promise to succeed. This is a challenge to be the best, to do everything to the glory of God and pursue spiritual maturity. And don't just be happy to be a believer. Don't be one of these uh, lukewarm, mediocre Christians who just says, well, I'm just going to be happy to be in heaven, and I don't care whether I'm in a mansion or, or a shack. I'll be in heaven. Yeah, well, you'll have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. The promise of Christ is to overcome. The challenge is to overcome. And that's for every one of us. Some days we're, we, we emulate it. A lot of days we don't. But we never want to lose sight of what the goal is, and that is to excel in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So that's what Overcomer is all about, and it's related to these incentives these awards, these crowns, a lot of people say, well, well, I should just do it uh, out of my desire to serve the Lord. Well, yes, you are. But God recognizes that that, that desire to serve the Lord needs to be re uh, rewarded. It needs to be commended, uh, just like you should be doing with your kids. They should be obedient to you because you're the father or mother and they're the kid. And that ought to be enough. No, it shouldn't. When they do well, you should praise them and you should give them uh, prizes and you should give them gifts and make a big deal about what they do uh, when they do things well because when they don't do things well, you're probably g going in the other direction. So the Lord is going to praise us for doing well and we need to do well. So we'll come back next time and go back into Philippians 1 and continue our study there. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. And, Father, we just ask that you would help us to uh, focus on the mission, that we are to grow and mature as believers, shine as lights in the midst of a, a wicked and perverse world. We are to be witnessing to those who are lost, and we are to be encouraging those who are not to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we should be motivators of others to get with it in their, in their Christian life. And we pray that we will, and you would encourage us in that direction. In Christ's name, amen.